Well, as we were going through, you probably have a lot of questions in this passage. And I'm going to make a promise to you this morning. I will not answer all of them. I can't do it. Not in the time we have in front of us. So I'm going to try and stick to the biggest ideas and show us, uh, talk about as many of the contributing details as I can. But I'm going to miss a lot. And that's sort of, you know, if you want me to go on for the next three or four hours, we can probably get it all. I don't think you want that. We're going to try and, and just stick to the big idea here this morning. If you looked at the world today and you asked the question, who is in charge, Jesus or the dragon, as he's described in the book of Revelation, Jesus or Satan, what would most people say, do you think? Or what, what do our own hearts whisper to us in the dark places we find ourselves in this world? When you see the disaster in the Middle East that George referred to, who do you think is reigning? What does it feel like? When you see the dysfunction in our country, who do you think is reigning? When people criticize you for following Jesus, when Christians around the world are suffering and even killed for following Jesus, does it seem like Jesus is reigning? When you see justice being perverted, sometimes right in front of you, sometimes to you, who do you think is reigning? When you see the homeless on our streets, the wildfires destroying our forests, when you worry about whether there will be water for crops next year, if you can shake that depression that makes it so hard to get out of bed in the morning, if your family member or friend will finally succumb to the alcoholism, who does it feel like is reigning? You get where I'm going with this, right? Nearly 300 years ago, the French philosopher and satirist Voltaire wrote a little book called Candide, one of his most famous books, in which the main character, Candide, says at one point, optimism is the obstinacy of maintaining that everything is best when it is worst. Get that? Let me read it one more time. Optimism is the stubbornness of maintaining that everything is the best it can be when it's actually as bad as it can be. Now, first of all, do you want to live your life the way Voltaire suggests? Everything's terrible. Everything's bad. Does that sound like a happy sort of world? I don't think so. But he's got a point, doesn't he? It's easy to look out and ignore the things that have gone wrong in our world. As a matter of fact, sometimes that feels like the only way to deal with them, to avoid them and wish that they would just go away. Go, go away. How can a Christian say with a straight face in light of all of these terrible events in our world that Christ is really reigning? There is an objection, a philosophical objection to the existence of God. It's called the problem of evil. And when it's phrased as a deductive argument, it says, if there really is a God who is all good, all powerful, all wise, that means he knows that there's evil in our world. That means he is able to do something about it, and it means he wants to do something about it. But evil continues to exist in our world, so if there is a God, he can't be all good, all wise, or all knowing. And now we can't be Christians if that's true, because that's what we claim about our God. And in some ways, this problem of evil, this problem of who is really reigning, is the most important question the book of Revelation tackles. 
John wrote to Christians who were seeing their worlds fall apart every day precisely because they were followers of Jesus. They felt like, well, if we follow Jesus, we should get good stuff for that. If it's really true, our lives should be better, but sometimes they feel a lot worse. And John writes because his book is meant to pull back the curtain and help people see behind the events that they were living through. You need to see more than this moment, than this second, than this pain that you have. Do you know what I've noticed about pain? You may have noticed this too. A lot of you have felt a lot more pain than I have in your bodies, in your hearts, and in all sorts of different places. But when I feel pain, my vision gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And my world narrows down until all I can see is my pain. That's what pain does to us. And John says, if you do that, you won't see what God is doing. What God is doing is bigger than that narrow vision. Sometimes it's bigger than we can see at all. When I was uh, in middle school, I climbed Mount St. Helens in Washington State. And don't get impressed, it's not a big achievement. Mount St. Helens is 8,800 feet tall. It's like where General Sherman is up in the trees. So, you know, it's not that high. But I remember as we were climbing up, it was tough for me. And, uh, and when you're mountain climbing, you, you're trying to get to the top of something. But the mountain you know, doesn't just go evenly up in the same direction the whole way. There are little humps and hills, and sometimes it's steeper, and sometimes it's less steep, and you really like the less steep parts. But when you get to those steep parts, what happens is you can't see beyond the end of that little section. Right? Your vision is so small. You can't, when you're standing on the mountain, you, you can't even really see the mountain, can you? All you can see is the little bits that are right directly in front of you. It's one thing to stand on the slope and look up and say, I hope that's the top. And then you get there and you're like, oh, no, it's so much taller than I realized. And it's another thing to stand miles away and say, wow, look at that mountain. I can see the whole thing. It's pretty incredible. Sometimes we simply don't have big enough vision to see. Now, here in chapter 20, I'm going to take the passage out of order from how we read it because John himself doesn't actually have these visions, I think, in historical or chronological order. He's jumping all over the place because he wants people to understand an idea more than he wants them to understand a series of events. Sometimes we open up the book of Revelation, we're like, yes, a roadmap to the end. It's not. If you try and follow it like a roadmap, you'll get hopelessly lost. But if you try and look at it and see, okay, what are the big ideas? Then you'll start to understand. What we see here is that John says, yeah, I know it feels like Satan is reigning, but Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not at some point in the future, but today. How can that be? Well, first of all, many of us, if you uh, noticed here, in chapter 20, it describes a thousand-year period. Do you remember what we've learned about numbers in the book of Revelation? They're almost always symbols instead of literal numbers. And I'll give you an example of, of how we know this. In, in Revelation chapter 7, uh, John tells us that 144,000 people from Israel are sealed as belonging to God. 12,000 from each tribe, 12 tribes, 144,000. But in the very next verse, after it finishes telling us about that ceiling, it says, all together it's 144,000. And then John looks and he sees a multitude. 
that no one can number. Because the point isn't like, once you get to 144,000, God's done. Like, no more, sorry if you're 144,000 and one, you're out of luck. He's saying, I am sealing the exact chosen number. I'm choosing the exact chosen number. I'm bringing in everyone who I have destined for this. And I'm not going to lose a single one. And it's not just 144,000 people. It's an uncountable multitude number of people. So many that if you tried to take a census, you'd give up. What an amazing thing. God's grace and his mercy are so big. And so in chapter 20, when it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years in verse 2, and then when it says that Christ rules for a thousand years uh, in verse 4, this is not a literal thousand years. Now, there are some good, wonderful Christians out there. I've known a number of them, and I deeply respect them who think it is a literal thousand years. I just want to let you know, if you run across another Christian, who says, no, this is a literal thousand years, you can say, that's okay. Like, we, we can still be friends. You know, we're still Christians together and all of this. But I, I think that they're wrong in that understanding. This thousand years is actually emphasizing that Christ's kingdom lasts a long time. As a matter of fact, it has no end. But when did it begin? Right? Well, it began with the first day of Jesus Christ's ministry. Maybe we can even say it began with his birth. Maybe we can even go all the way back to the beginning and say it began with God's promise that one day he would send someone to his people who would rescue them and save them. But certainly, it began with his ministry. If we go back to Luke chapter 11, uh, Jesus is casting out demons. And the religious leaders say, Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. He's actually the servant of Satan himself. And Jesus you know, has some stuff to say about that. But one of the things that he says is, don't you understand what I'm doing? I am setting people free from Satan's command and control. I am giving them spiritual freedom. And if I am doing that, that means I am binding Satan. Just like it says here in chapter 20 of Revelation. I am binding him and saying, you no longer have free reign to do whatever you want down here. As a matter of fact, he didn't even have free reign in the Old Testament before Jesus' ministry. But he says, I am limiting your power and your abilities and you can only do whatever I allow you to do. And I am in the midst of setting people free from your rule. We know this because uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2, it talks about how the coming man of lawlessness, but it also talks about how all of these people who never knew Jesus, all of the nations, which is who the devil deceives in Revelation chapter 20, all of the nations are now called to Jesus Christ and can come to him freely. Let me ask you out there, how many of you are a Jew born in Israel? Right? We here are the living proof that Satan no longer has free reign to deceive the nations because we are part of the nations that John talks about and we know Jesus Christ and we have been set free and Christ's power in our lives is greater than the power of Satan, not least because Jesus is the resurrection and the life and he who believes in Jesus Christ, although he dies, yet shall he live. Further, the millennium, this thousand years, oh, sorry, I just did that point. And this is what the people in the first century needed to know. 
as their pain narrowed their vision. They needed John's vision to open it back up and be reminded, don't you remember Jesus rose from the dead? Don't you remember he casts out Satan? Don't you remember that he who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world? And he says, don't you need to know that even though when you tell people about Jesus Christ, and sometimes that results in rejection, and sometimes it results in imprisonment, and sometimes it may even result in your death. These are the people John wrote to. This is what they were experiencing. He says, you don't feel powerful in doing that. As a matter of fact, you feel like other people have power over you. But your witness is the true witness. And your witness is the witness that will endure. When you say Jesus Christ is Lord, that statement is never wasted. That statement is power to transform the world that you live in because it, will, it has transformed your life and it can transform the lives of the people that you speak to, all those whom God has called. Jesus, I love it. In his ministry, in the end of the Gospel of John, he's praying to the Father and he says, everyone that you have given me, I haven't lost a single one. Jesus doesn't lose people. Satan is not reigning. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's our faithful witness to Jesus that will endure into eternity long after any politician or scholar or celebrity is forgotten. The opposition is temporary, but the testimony is permanent. Jesus is reigning through his faithful people giving their faithful witness. And a day is coming when all the world authority structures and every enemy of Christ will finally realize their defeat and how temporary they were. A great battle will be fought. And all the great ones of the earth who have resisted Christ and his kingdom will line up to fight according to their best weapons and their great power. And it's important to identify what those weapons are. I've got a few samples here. Bombs and bullets, right? That's the easiest one to think of. Speeches and sayings. Books and articles, politics and kings, alternate explanations of what this world is, who it's for and what it's all about. We have this marketplace of ideas in our culture, don't we? People who are saying, well, the world's about this. No, the world's about that. We have battles that are raging in our culture, right? The culture wars themselves, such as they are. People who are saying, we've got to win the culture back to this idea or this, this thing, but the Christian says, I don't have to win anybody back. I have to be faithful. And it's God's job to do the winning at the end. Because, see, these are the only weapons we've got. Bombs and bullets. How effective are those? I mean, they seem really effective, don't they? Except Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So what harm are they going to do God's people? Speeches and sayings. There are people out there giving alternate accounts of who Jesus is and what he did and what the world is all about, of what it means to be human, of what it means to, to live in these different ways, of what's good and what's evil and, and all these sorts of things. And yet Jesus Christ is the great judge, as we'll see in just a moment. The sword comes out of his mouth to overcome the words of anyone else. Books and articles are in the same category. Politics and kings Every four years, right, it feels like we're deciding the fate of our country again. Folks, we're just not. It's fascinating because every election is always the most important one we've ever had, right? Yeah, but it's not because we already know who the king is. 
Because Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because he's defeated death. Who can do anything to him? Who can rip him down or tear him down from his place? The world has already given him its worst. And after three days, he's like, yep, I'm done with that. That's fine. And he can never be harmed again. The battle is done. Jesus Christ has been anointed king. He is standing on the throne in heaven. And he is bringing his rule to earth through his faithful people. See, we are not trying to create anything down here. Sometimes it feels that way, right? We're trying to make Lemon Cove, you know, a better place. This is the way most we usually talk. We're trying to make Lemon Cove a better place. We're trying to make Woodlake a better place. Wherever you are, we're trying to make that a better place. But no, we're not. We're trying to announce that the better place is on its way. Jesus Christ is on his way. Do you want to be found doing his work, or do you want to be found opposing him when he gets here? Jesus Christ has already won the battle. He's already won the victory. He's already transformed the world. And we are to be the evidence of that. Not the people who win it for everyone else. It's already won. We're just to live in the life that Jesus has given us. Our faithful testimony. Jesus died and he rose from the dead. And look at who I can be as a result. Don't you want that? Uh, As Christmas comes up in a few weeks, we're planning for it around here. And I remember the angel announcing to the shepherds, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And we're going to have some time, a lot of time to talk about all of this. But did your faith stop being good news to you? Did knowing Jesus stop being good news? Did it start becoming a list of, please stop that. Please don't do that. Oh, those people are going to hell. Has our faith become that? Because that's an easy thing for it to become. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is coming to save. And if we refuse to be saved, he is coming to judge, and that's good news too. Because that will change the world as well. And that brings us into these other passages here uh, that surround the thousand years. First, the heavenly warrior who defeats the beast, the the heading in, in my NIV translation of the Bible here. I saw heaven standing open, and there's Jesus. And we'll get back to his description in a second. But uh, you see, did you catch the angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair? Come gather for the great supper of God. Well, that sounds neat. So you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and the riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And you're like, well, that sounds kind of gross. Like the Bible is not rated G, uh, which is kind of tough sometimes. But that judgment is coming. And that judgment is good news too. Uh, If you live in Israel and your friends and your family were kidnapped or you're living under fear of something like that, you don't just want peace, but you want the evildoers judged. If you are living in, if you're living in a place where your home has been invaded and people have done unspeakable things, you don't just want them to leave, you want them to be judged. And that is godly too. Because our actions matter. This is the problem when we say, you know, God just, he loves you. It doesn't matter what you do. You know, he's, he's going to accept you. You'll be in heaven someday. Everything will be great. I mean, it sounds nice, doesn't it? But what it does is it says to all the people who have suffered before, yeah, we don't care. We don't care that that hurt. 
We don't care that that's suffered. We don't care about giving justice. We're just going to be one big happy family at the end. Tell, does, how does that work? How does that work when the people who have wronged you have never been held account, uh, accountable for their actions, and they, you're put in a room with them and said, can you please live together and get along now? Is that going to work? I mean, I, I think that we sometimes insist, like, well, just get over it. Just forgive these people. Have you forgiven people before? It's not easy. And if people continue in bad behavior with you and they continue needing more and more forgiveness from you, it only gets harder. Somebody has to deal with the fact that the world is broken and that we have been complicit. And that's why what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is so incredible. Because he said, that hole is so deep, you will never get out of it. Never. But I can lift you out. I will take your place in the hole. I will suffer what was coming toward you. And what happens when, have you ever been in a position where I remember when I was a kid, uh, I had a, a friend and we had this conflict and, and we weren't allowed to see each other for a little while. And then finally, one day we were allowed to get back together and, and hang out. And what was the first thing that happened? I, I was at his house and I, I, you know, the back door, the sliding glass door was open and I walked into the screen. And I knocked it off because I didn't see the screen, right? It was probably a great, really funny moment. If someone had been filming it, we would have won $10,000 on America's Funniest Home Videos. But you know what my friend did when his mom came into the room? She said, what happened here? Right? Who did this? Who broke this thing? He said, I did. I did. Because he didn't want to lose friendship again. And don't you think that touched my heart and changed and transformed me? And it did. It turned my heart toward gratitude. It turned my heart toward service to my friend. That's just a little thing, isn't it? You know, screen door, we probably would have survived that and it would have been okay. But we're talking about life and death. And Jesus stepped into the hole and died in my place. And don't you think that's changed my life? Hasn't that changed your life? Judgment comes, and it's a good thing, because the world will never be whole until we can say that it went wrong and deal with it. But I just want to leave you this morning with this picture of Jesus. A few times in the book of Revelation, we stop, and John just looks at Jesus, and he tells us what he sees. It's a little hard to understand, right? I saw heaven standing open. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges, and he makes war. He wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. What does that look like? And on his head are many crowns. Remember, these are symbols, right? It's not like balancing the crowns all the time. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood. You have to ask, whose blood? Maybe his, dying in my place. Maybe a robe dipped in blood for for the war that he wages and the terrible necessity for it. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen. But coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This is his word of judgment. 
Um, have you ever been called out? You, uh, maybe you're going on living your life just like everything's normal and fine, and all of a sudden, uh, somebody speaks a deeply disturbing truth about you, and you can't deny it in that moment. Maybe it's a mistake you've made, a sin you've committed. Somebody says, you think you're this way, but really you are this way. And if you've been in that moment, you know when that happens, it's, it is a crushing, devastating thing. See, I'm not sure that what's being described here is actually a war. Because first of all, Jesus doesn't use bombs and bullets. He doesn't use swords or any of those things. Peter drew a sword once. Jesus like, put it away. That's not what we're about here. I think all Jesus has to do is speak the truth about who we are and about what we've done. That takes us to the very end of the passage here, the judgment of the dead. We didn't actually read this, but it's part of our message this morning. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his uh, presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. See, these books are the record of the lives that we've lived. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Nobody escapes. And each person was judged according to what they had done. That sounds absolutely just, doesn't it? According to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of the fire, into the lake of fire. I... Um, this is a fearful passage because I don't think there's a single person here who's comfortable having every one of their deeds read out in front of one person, much less it sounds kind of like everybody's listening. Everything I've done. Scholars, theologians are divided on uh, whether Christians themselves must be judged in this way. I think that they will be. I think we'll have the litany. But something amazing is going to happen. For all of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have said, I choose the life that God offers me, it says that there's not just the one book that records everything that we've done, but there's a second book, the book of life. And Scripture tells us everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, their name is written in that book. And being reformed uh, in theology the way that we are, once your name's in the book, there's no blotting it out. There's nothing you can do to remove it. God's grace is forever more powerful than your capacity to sin. And maybe what will happen, purely speculating here, but maybe what will happen is the angel, whoever it is, will start to read the story of my life. And there will come a point where I can take it no longer I'll say, you're right. All of that judgment about me is right. And the only thing I can do is say, I put my trust in Jesus Christ. And they'll close up the book. And they'll open the book of life. Say, oh, look, Ian. 
There you are. Enter into life. Jesus Christ is reigning today through his faithful people who don't give up their testimony about who he is and what he's done just because Satan's thrown a temper tantrum, but who instead remain faithful even to the point of death and in so doing imitate their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and give the last and greatest testimony they can of who he is and of what he has done. And there is no power in the world that can triumph over that. No power in the world that can wipe out Jesus' work for his people. Jesus, he is the coming king. He is ruling. Let's be people who make sure we don't give up on the testimony, who don't give up on inviting people into good news. As we consider these things,